Do you believe that? Do you believe that there will be a day? I've got to tell you, I've uh, been watching, like many of you, um, this Ukrainian tragedy. And uh, is NATO going to get pulled into this? But just seeing these refugees on top of the refugees we have seen being, you know, poured out of pouring out of Assyria and much of Iraq and various places around the country these last years. It just seems like event after event where innocence is being, you know, punished in many ways and uh, the good guys seem to be losing at times and the bad guys seem to be triumphing and you just wonder if there's going to be that day. Well, there's going to be that day and this book is the message of that day and when that day comes, there will be no more fleeing. Uh, there will be no missiles being fired in indiscriminately into women and children and others, and that day is going to be over. So uh, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your guidance this morning. We need help. We, we're trying to understand what you say about our lives, about a, the purpose for which we are here and find ourselves on this little tiny planet called Earth. We look out in the galaxy and we just say we seem so insignificant and yet we hold this book in front of us today and it says that we were created in your image and that you, as the first song said, hold all things together, Jesus. All things were created by you and for you and there's nothing that's been created that, well, that doesn't hold together through you. And if that's true, that's the most extraordinary news that mankind has ever heard, will hear, or ever will hear. And Lord... We are trying to then download what you say about us today, and we're going to need some guidance. I will for sure, and everyone listening, whether it be on television or whether it be online later, maybe even five years down the road, somehow they pick up a YouTube video and they come across it, Lord. Give us insight into what you say, what you say, the creator of all things, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we're going to press on. We've been looking this last uh, few weeks uh, through chapter 11 really at really bad re religion. Uh, we saw last week that I, religion can very often, as Christopher Hitchens, the well-known atheist who is now passed, said, religion poison ev poisons everything. And depending on how you define the terms, uh, religiosity can do that and has done that, so we shouldn't run from that. Uh, but Relationship is something radically different, and what this book teaches is not just religious practice, but relationship. And now the shift is on, because Jesus is no longer, as we work through the gospel of Luke, is no longer going to be speaking to the crowds. He's going to turn, and he's going to be talking to his disciples. This is the last few weeks of his life. He knows the purpose for which he came. It was to be the Lamb of God. It was to be the ultimate and final sacrifice. It is is finished. No more, no more bloodletting would be necessary uh, in, in the lives of the church, although many would mar be martyred through the years, uh, not for the purposes of saving anybody else, but for the purposes, well, well really, uh, because they were following Jesus. And that still happens to this day. Missionaries are being, you know, imprisoned and tortured and, and all those kinds of things. And so, that still occurs, and yet here's this picture that Jesus now gives, and he's going to turn to his disciples, the very ones that would probably, many of them, lay down their lives, with maybe the exception of John, Peter crucified upside down, and others. And this is how he begins 
he begins to teach. And now he's been teaching them along the way, and you see he's speaking to the crowds, and he's speaking to the disciples, but from here on out, he's only speaking to those close. And I want to be one of those people, don't you? I want to be one of those that can hear, one of those disciples that can hear, not just part of the crowds that some kind of sometimes kind of hear grandiose things coming out of preachers' mouths, but I want to be one of those fellow disciples. So in my view, he's speaking to me here in the 21st century. It's these intimate conversations he's having. Most of them don't understand it. He, they won't understand it until the Spirit is poured out. But right now, they're doing the best they can to try to grasp what he's telling them. And this is what he does, and we're not going to finish it all today, but we're, he really issues four various warnings to his disciples. Hypocrisy, the fear of men, not confessing him before men, and then in weeks to come, we'll get into this whole idea that somehow we can make our home here, and it's going to be the parable of the rich guy who stored all of his stuff and said, you know, take it easy and relax, and that probably won't have any bearing on where we live, will it? I say that with tongue-in-cheek. So are you ready for this? I'm here, Lord Jesus, help us. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. Try to get the picture. So Jesus began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He'd been talking about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, and he goes ahead and describes, defines exactly what the leaven of the Pharisees is. It is hypocrisy. Now, you need to understand the Greek word here, hypocrisy, uh, was a was like a stage uh, expression. Uh, people would come on and they would be on a stage like this and they would act and people what what great hypocrisy. In other words, this is extraordinary what they're able to do. They're, they're able to take on a completely different persona than they really are and that's great acting and we still admire that and the Grammys are coming up and all this other thing and we just we just think it's so fantastic when somebody can take on a different persona and become someone that they're not. Some actors uh, put on uh, 50 pounds or something, or they take off 50 pounds. I think of Christian Bale and becoming so gaunt and so thin for one of the movies. And same way with Matthew McConaughey when he, uh, Dallas Buyers Club, I believe it was, and he'd lost so much weight. And you just think, it's amazing. I just didn't even know it was, it was, it was these people. They just took on a completely different picture. And Jesus is saying, this is the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, what you see on the outside, well, it's hypocrisy up on the stage. What you see them portraying is something that doesn't exist on the inside. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But, and then he, and he says this, it's, it's both terrifying and it's comforting. It depends on what side of the aisle you happen to find yourself. He says, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. Ooh. Nothing. Nothing that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now, in that day, that's what they would do. If they had to make a public announcement, they would go up on a rooftop, and they would get the small village around or as best they could, or they would have multiple criers in a sense, and they would yell out this information that was to be made public. We do that with... Instagram and Facebook and 
TikTok, I think is what it's called. I'm so poor at social media, but I have girls, and they understand all this kind of thing. And, uh, and television, and, and we have all kinds of broadcast platforms. It's amazing. We're getting information back now from the battlefield almost in a moment-by-moment basis. A, a missile strike hits, and we instantly know it. Imagine nothing. Everything's going to be revealed. Why would Jesus be saying this? Well, he goes on. He says, I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who has, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's not saying his disciples, he's not, he's not saying, disciples, you're going to get cast into hell. Fear, fear God because you're going to get cast into hell. He's just, he's trying to give us a juxtaposition between God and then man. Why are you so worried about men? Well, the whole idea of hypocrisy really is built upon the back of the idea that we care more about what people say than what God says. I still love the hat that I have that it's a Fellowship of Christian Athletes hat. It just says audience of one, audience of one. It's a nice looking hat too. Audience of one, what does that mean? Well, hypocrisy, again, is built on the back of the, of the fundamental worldview that I am so concerned about what other people think. And so he's saying, be careful, fear him. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than all these sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man, will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, well, that will be forgiven him. But if he blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it's not going to be forgiven him. I'm going to go into that next week. It's a complicated, scary, what does that mean? I'm going to give you my best take on that next week. But then he, find, he kind of finishes this dialogue at this, at least for our purposes. He says, when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers, he said, and the authorities, don't worry about how or what you're to speak in your defense or what you're to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour exactly what you are to say. And if you've had that experience before, and I have, that still goes true today. There are moments where I confess before men and then something comes at me that I don't think can come from my puny little mind and then all of a sudden just this river of language comes out that's perfectly attuned to the Holy Spirit and to God's heart and I say, where did that come from? It came from here, according to Jesus. It just is part of the supernatural reality of what it is to have a relationship with Jesus. The Spirit lives in you, and he will flow out of you. So I want to go back now, and I want to think about something here. Uh, In light of the temptation for hypocrisy, right? Okay, and you need to get this. We get so caught up in the seen realm. We do, don't we? It just, this hypocrisy seeps in very slowly, uh, we, we kind of care about wanting to talk about God, but by the same token, because he's doing things in our lives, and by the, and by the other token, we're, we're also very concerned about what people think. And sometimes you can write it off, well, I'm not the professional. I'm not the professional religionist, right? I'm not, the, I'm not the guy up there talking or the woman leading that Bible study or whatever. I'm just one of these, and, 
And so we're reluctant to, but part of that, as again, is built upon the back of the fear of what people will think. We've all been there. I've been there. But I'm less there now than I have ever been. And let me tell you, it is the most liberating thing you will ever do. There is so much dissonance going on in your brain when you know that you want to talk about Jesus or you maybe you should talk about Jesus or at least bring him up in context, and yet you're afraid. And I hate that. And I've had that at various points where I kind of back off a little bit. And I look, be led by the Spirit. I'm not saying just be a blowhard and be a know-it-all, but... You know, but if the Spirit is leading you to say something, then say it. And yet it just sleeps in solely. And then Jesus says, well, you need to know that everything's going to be revealed. And like I said earlier, this can be very comforting. I can imagine that if I was a refugee right now in Ukraine and I'd made my way maybe with some young children and my husband was left behind... Uh, and I'm a woman with two kids, and my husband's left behind, and I've made my way, and I've finally crossed the border into Poland, and, uh, and the, the ideas and the thoughts that would be streaming in, how unjust this is, how, how unreal this is, I can't imagine that God would allow this to happen. I, uh, this, would seem, this would seem very comforting to believe that one day it'll all be unfolded. I saw something last night, even last night, that was related to Putin and how much he might be worth. Some suggest he might be the wealthiest man on the planet in excess of $100 billion uh, or whatever. And they, they talked about this thing on the Black Sea, this thing that, that really harkens back to the czars and uh, just unbelievable hockey rinks and this and that and the money, and they kind of been tracing it back, and they think he kind of owns all that, and he's, he's been funded by the oligarchs and all this kind of thing. And you just wonder, Lord, will all this be revealed? And Jesus saying, don't worry, it's all going to come to light. So in that way, I can imagine being very comforted, but if I was a follower or kind of a religionist, or somebody that went to church, and yet I'm leading a lifestyle that I know is not, well, it would also be a little bit scary, and we're going to talk about that. So uh, he, he goes through a couple of things. One day it's all going to come to light. Every detail is going to be unpacked in the entire universe, even your follicle count. Your confession does matter. Blasphemy against the Spirit is really the end of the road. Again, we'll talk about that in weeks to come. And when you're persecuted, don't freak out. The Holy Spirit's going to give you the words that you need. When you're socially ostracized, when you don't know what to say, when you're at a social party or you're with your friends or something, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will be there to give it to you, but to confess me before men. So number one, everything's going to come to light. Everything's going to come to light. Again, is this warning or is this comfort? I don't know if you're aware, but over the last year or two, we've seen all kinds of things come to light. I think of Harvey Weinstein. Uh, a lot came to light. I mean, you really can go from the pinnacle of the Hollywood, kind of uh, the whole mountain of Hollywood, and go from the pinnacle to being imprisoned and being in a horrible place. So maybe the financial world with Bernie Madoff. Again, I may have told you before, I had a good friend in Aspen, and he got one phone call, one phone call, and said, you, don't, you, you thought you had $21 million in the bank? You don't have the $21, 21 million in the bank. That was because uh, he had invested with Bernie. That was all he had, but it was a sub- substantive part. All that came to light, all the, everything over all those years, and yet he got away with it for a long, long time. It was a part of the fabric of that Palm Beach community, Bernie Madoff. Bill Cosby, uh, docuseries is out now on Bill Cosby, all that. 
I mean, I love Bill Cosby. I mean, when I was a kid, we watched the Cosby show, and he was the perfect dad and all this, and now he's been drugging women all these years, really? Not just one woman or two or three or four, you know, we don't even know. The count is lost count of all the women, and even the ones that maybe still fear coming forward, and yet it has all come to light. It's being shouted from the rooftops of well, television, docuseries, and, of course, social media as well. That's usually where it begins in our age. Recently, there's another docuseries on Hugh Hefner and all the, all the lifestyle and all the things that happened at the, at the mansion right there in L.A. And, all this, and now these women are coming out and men are coming out and they're saying it was nothing but abuse and scandal. And, and again, it's being shouted from the rooftops. Is this unusual? No, Jesus said. It all comes to light, either in this world, in the cases that I've just mentioned, or in the world to come. There is a world to come. If you don't believe in the world to come, you might think you can get away with it forever. But if you do believe in the world to come, you do realize that there will be a day. Good for the Ukrainian refugee, not so good for the, well, the Cosbys and the Hefners and whatever else may come out. And we'll come around the bend in weeks to come. I have no doubt there will be somebody else in the next six months that will emerge and it will all be unpacked before our eyes, whether it be child abuse in the church or another fallen pastor or something. And I've got to tell you, this puts the fear of God in me. Lord, let me lead a communal lifestyle, a confessional lifestyle. Let me be transparent. Let me have people deeply embedded into my life to be witnesses of my life. Lord, I don't want to slip. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. Hebrews chapter 12, I alluded to it a minute ago in terms of the sacrifice of praise. Let me read this for you, verse 22. How do we know this is the case? Because God is the judge. You may not like that. You may not, you want to maybe want to displace God from your life. It's a, we, we like to just Thing, have things just you know kind of vanish and go away we like to imagine that there is, will be no judge no accountability obviously many of these men that I just alluded to have had that probably that sense in their life that there is no accountability so why not live as I want to live I mean that's really much the premise of our worldview today isn't it do whatever do whatever it is that you feel act on it Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22 you've Come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and myriads of angels, and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. It's a picture he's getting, a vision of the way it really is in the unseen realm. God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and I would be terrified if it was just God, the judge of all, but thank God, Paul added, verse 24, and then to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, I've taught extensively on this before, but Abel cried out for justice, and I'm telling you, I've told you many times before, the last thing I want in my own life is justice. I want grace, and I want mercy. I don't want justice. I know the God that I'm dealing with. It tells me, and plus, it's deep in, deeply embedded in my own DNA. I know what God's like. He reveals himself in the person of Jesus, and I find myself coming up staggeringly short, staggeringly short of his nature as I read about his own sacrificial life that he led. Not just a man, that would be impressive enough, but the God-man to, take, to descend into 
humanity, fallen humanity, and take the form of a bond slave. It's staggering to me. But he's going to mediate a new covenant. It's not like the old covenant that cried out for justice. People read the law all the time, and they say, well, I read the Bible, and it's just horrible, you know, talking about stoning people and, you know, the brutality of that. That was given to Israel. It wasn't given to the world. It was given to Israel for a short period of time, and its purposes were multifold, multifaceted. It was to reveal Jesus, but God in Jesus, under the new covenant, says, I'm going to sprinkle my blood, and he even did this with Moses. Moses would sprinkle the blood on them as a prefiguring of that and sprinkle them. And Isaiah saw it. He's going to sprinkle the nations. Why? Anybody who would come near me and follow me, I will sprinkle them with my blood, and that blood will cover their sins, and it won't have to be shouted from the rooftops. Or you can go it your own way. You choose. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is writing again some 600 years or so before the time of Jesus. He sees the same thing coming. Verse 33, but this is the covenant. See, Jeremiah was seeing a new covenant. Then Paul says it's Jesus, and it speaks much better than the covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant that cries out for justice and mercy. Listen, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they won't teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. won't need to be shouted from the rooftops. Thank God uh, the sins and transgressions, if you saw the words in that, first song, you know, the troubles that were behind, the troubles that I caused. The, I was the victim at times, but I was more often the victimizer, and because of that, I'm so glad that because he sprinkled me and covers me, it won't have to be, well, it won't have to be shouted from the rooftops if I live under this new covenant. Do you live? And I'm asking you the question, do you live under the new covenant? Simple as following Jesus. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved from the, shouted from the rooftops. Now, in this life, it may be shouted, but I'm talking in an eternal sense now. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, meaning under his covenant of sprinkling of blood. Again, or you can, I I choose it to go, you know, Frank Sinatra's way. I did it my way. I'm going to do it my way. If there is a God, I'll stand before that God. I'll state my case. I'm pretty articulate. I'll I'll make my case, and, and I'll just roll the dice on this thing. Or I can live now into the new covenant that screams not like the blood of Abel for justice and mercy, but screams for grace. No, justice, and screams for grace and mercy. Hebrews chapter 10, it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. It's a terrifying thing. So this whole thing about this uncovering is both liberating for those who are being oppressed and also terrifying for those who are the oppressors. Is that not true? And yet the Bible says we're all the oppressors. So it's terrifying. Is there an out? Yes, there was an out. It's the new covenant. Philippians 2 verse 12, listen to what he says. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
even the working out of my salvation is a little bit, uh, it needs to be done in a fearful way, meaning not like I'm terrified of my heavenly Father because I know I'm beloved. I know I'm part of the beloved. Ephesians tells us that. Romans 9 tells us that. Part of the beloved. I'm part of the family. I know that. But I still want to work out what's happened to me under the new covenant. I want to work it out in a beautiful, amazing fashion where God is pleased with me. So there's still that working out of what is occurring on the inside. It's not just believe the right thing and then go just be a free-for-all. Of course not. Nobody who's truly saved ever feels that way. If you feel that way, you need to go back to the beginning and start over and say, what is it to be born again? What does this even look like? Now, the second thing is that God knows it all, and Jesus, in a very interesting way, he makes this connection. First of all, number one, why fear man? Why fear man? Well, they control our lives. Our bosses can fire us. Our clients can cancel a contract, you know? I mean, uh, a dictator can come in and overrun our country. A government can tax and maybe even imprison us at various points. Of course, man is to be feared. And what Jesus is saying, don't be sucked into the idea that man has the ultimate control. He doesn't. God is in control of everything. Everything. See, the connection that he's making is he's trying to say, don't, there is a subtle pull of hypocrisy that just is like the, the proverbial frog boiling in the, the water. It just t- turn up the heat a little bit and he never jumps out. It just comes on us slowly. But again, the foundations of that are the fear of men. Why fear God? Because he's the judge of all, because he knows everything, and because ultimately we will all stand and give an account before this divine mind, before this creator who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. If you believe that then you can take a big sigh. You can take a breath. If you don't believe that and you want to go it alone, have it your way. But it's a terrifying place to be, and it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If God's the creator, then he knows all the details. He knows the the small the very small, you hear me talking at the quantum level, maybe even at the subquantum level, and the string, if it's string theory or whatever it is, all the way to the Kepler's laws and, all, and the, way the, the way stars move and, and, the, and, and the way the galaxy and orbits and all that kind of thing. He knows there's nothing that the Webb telescope can tell God that he doesn't already know if he's the creator. And if he's the creator of all that, you don't think he knows the number of hairs on your head or how many sparrows, like when I was downstairs at the coffee shop below our offices the other day and I was thinking about this and these sparrows just kind of came and they're just little tiny things and they're picking up a crumb and pick and you just kind of shoo them away. And, and how many were there? Who knows? Who cares? Who cares? God cares, and he knows. So you can be confident that nothing will escape his gaze. Again, very liberating for a woman with two kids fleeing the Ukraine. A little terrifying for the Harveys and the Bernies and the Bills and the Hughes. And maybe us here today. Do you believe that? Quick sidebar, if God does exist, we were designed and we matter, right? If he does not, we weren't designed and we don't matter. I know that's hard to imagine, but imagine for a moment, John Lennon, imagine 
Imagine there is no God, he says. Imagine there is no God. Okay, imagine. Then I mean nothing. I'm a blind, random, chaotic chance that emerged, and we call it consciousness or something, I don't know what. And we're just down here, a bag full of chemicals bumping into one another, and who really knows and who really cares? And accountability, no. It just is random chemicals. It's atoms moving in space, and we just bump into one another. And we can point, and we can say things, but in the end... And by the way, I want to say to the atheist that might say, well, I don't believe in a creator, and therefore, but we can create our own meaning. In the end, we don't matter. If we are accidents, we don't matter. But you know what the atheist has done when he says that? He's argued me out, are you ready, of being concerned about his thoughts at all. See, the atheist in arguing that we aren't designed and that there is no creator has argued me right into a place where I couldn't care what he says because he's just a bag of chemicals according to his own argument. Why would I care? But I know he's not. I know he's not, and that's why, because I believe Psalm 147 verse 5 that God counts the number of the stars and he gives names to them all. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Hair and birds and refugees and maybe even your backswing. So your confession matters. What you say matters. What is it about words that have such impact? As I was thinking about this week, uh, two things came to my mind. Two things came to my mind. Number one, when we speak, we are signaling to our minds, our volitional control center, if you will, the direction that we are choosing to go in that moment. See, sometimes we choose things, but we never say it, so we never feel, uh, we never feel the burden of having to walk it out. But once you make a public confession, people hear that, and you know that they hear it, and there's an intuitive sense in which you want to live into what you've said. There's something powerful about confession. It's not just a hoop that you have to jump in for spiritual, you know, jump through this hoop and this hoop and this hoop. That becomes religious. Jesus is giving us a deep understanding, something really profound here. If we will confess with our mouth, if we confess that Jesus is our king and that he, we follow him and we'll begin to intuitively try to let, allow our lives and the spirit to conform us to his image to actually become that person. Many times we confess things way before we really feel like we are, but that's, the, that's step number one. It's powerful. And then when we speak, again, as I alluded to, we're signaling to others that we're choosing to follow Jesus, and the public really do. They, they, they do. They hold us accountable. So it's both an internal thing that helps us follow a path, and then it's also an external thing when we speak that people go, oh, that's a Jesus person, and then we don't want to be, intuitively, we don't want to be the hypocrite. We don't want to be the stage actor. We want our lives to begin to conform to what we say. There's power in what you say. When somebody says something, you should believe it. Brett Favre, when he says he's going to retire, he's going to retire. Well, not Brett Favre. Okay, so Tom Brady, when he says he's going to, no, not Tom Brady. So Michael Jordan, when he said he, well, wait a minute. Well, it doesn't always work, but you get the point. Most of the time it does. Over time, it 
does. Romans 10, 9 and 10, many of you know it well. If you'll confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And with a, and with a heart, a man believes, resulting in, well, behavior that's right, the more complicit with what God wants with us, becoming more in the nature of Jesus. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in righteousness. Again, this heart-mouth connection are very important. Paul understood it. We should understand it. Is there a form of hypocrisy that rise, lies at the root of this comment? I do believe in God and his son Jesus, but I prefer to keep my faith private. Is there a fundamental hypocrisy in that? You know, we talk about that all. Just, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a person of faith, but I don't ever talk about it. Can I just say, that is not what Jesus taught his followers. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the angels of God one day. If you don't confess me before men, I won't. I don't know how it's seeped into the Western kind of vibe and the social kind of fabric of why we do. Somehow we believe that we can privatize our faith and we'll be just fine. Again, usually this person is fearing the opinions of people, aren't they? The, the really foundation of that is I'm afraid what people are going to say if I bring it up in public. We still don't have a clear picture of who we're following. The creator of all things, the one who holds all things together, the one in whom has been given by the Father the judgment of the nations. Do we really believe that? I don't think so. I don't think private, the privatization of our faith can even work in following Jesus. Jesus understood that leading a life of non-confession was a signal that a person was pretty far away from true salvation. It was interesting this week about not keeping your mouth shut. Now, this is just the way the Lord works, and it happens all the time in my life. So I was there this week, and I was at my, in, in my office, and I was kind of working through some thoughts on this, and I was scribbling some notes and all this kind of thing. And at the exact moment that I'm talking in my own mind, that the, I feel that the Spirit was talking to me about the privatization of faith, and it is not in any way anything other than just hypocrisy, and I know that's a bold statement because some of you may feel like, well, I don't really talk about it because, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. But I'm just telling you, I'm, as your pastor who loves you, I promise you, I beg you to consider what Jesus is saying here. And at that very moment, I got an email, a little email, ding. And I opened the email, and it was, uh, it was uh, my Southeast Region Director that I hired about a year ago, one of my long-term close friends, used to be the one of the VPs at Southeast Seminary and was also a big wig in the golf business and ran, you know, uh, some big stuff for Greg Norman and Ping through the years and all that. So he's perfect. He's like a theologian and a golf guy and all this, and he's our Southeast Region Director. And he was just showing me, hey, we just launched another fellowship. We've had over 30 fellowships launched in Lynx, and some of you know I still serve as president and CEO of Lynx as well. And we launched over 30 new fellowships in the Southeast this year. He's only been on staff for a year it's awesome, but he sent me a picture of a new group of women who had just launched, just launched a group at Hilton Head, and here's what he said, and here's what the email said. As I'm typing in, you shouldn't privatize your religion. Here's what his email said, Dennis. This is our new ladies group at Moss Creek in Hilton Head. Georgina is the leader, and she is on the far right in orange. I hope I pronounced that properly. Is it Georgina or Georgine? Maybe. I think Georgina. I copied and pasted one paragraph out of her four paragraphs, thought it was pertinent to our mission. 
We lo- and got to love this comment. He says, God doesn't have a backup plan. We are it. The Great Commission is the plan. And then he quotes Georgina, and this is what she said. The biggest hurdle I see is sharing our faith. There is the idea that religion should be private. As I'm, as I'm typing these words, and I'm like, all right. So I called him and I said, I'm putting their picture up here on their little group that just has met, you know, like one time. She goes on to say, so part of our discussion last night was that this is not about religion. The other part was that God doesn't have a backup plan. We are it and the Great Commission is the plan. Bingo, Georgina, you got it right on the head. Confession or privatization of our faith? Jesus says, privatization? Really? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen to what Peter and John did, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is now so, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven that has been given among men by which we may be saved. Now, you've got to realize this is right in the cauldron. You want to talk about risking your life. And then verse 13, and, and as they, again, these Pharisees, these hypocrites, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, golf pros, people like that, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them. They had nothing to say in reply, and when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. What what are we going to do with these guys? You know, if you stand up in your club or in your neighborhood or at school or with your friends and you start saying things like that, that Jesus is the way, that people are like, what are we going to do with her? We got to get her out of this sorority. We got to get her out of our neighborhood. We we can't let them meet here at our club. We can't let them. We can't. We got to get rid of them. No more pickleball for you. But the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. So, well, so it won't spread any further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no longer of this man uh, in this name, to any man in this name, excuse me. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak and teach at all in the name of Jesus. Do Do you realize there are forces in the world that are saying you can't do that anymore? And how did they respond? And Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have both seen and heard. Usually when people privatize their religion, they might have heard it, but maybe they've never seen it. I'm telling you, once you've seen Jesus come in and reconstruct someone's life, you can't talk, stop talking about it. People say, why would you kind of quit teaching golf and this and that and watching backswings and everything? I said, I just didn't have a taste for it anymore. I had something so much more profound to talk about that it just felt like a waste of time. And I still think about golf and way too much. I think way too much about golf and backswings and things like that. But relative to this, come on, really? I can't stop speaking about the things that I've both seen and heard. Let me just say, this is not just some technical point. Publicly talking about Jesus both helps guide your future heart decisions and reflects the encounters you are having with him personally. You can't stop talking about, again, what you have both seen and heard. And then finally, and we'll close with this, and I'm going to have someone come up. We're not going to quite make it through here. Acts chapter 5 again. Now the next occurrence, this was the last 
Verse 28, we, that's the council of the elders, the religious composed of Pharisees and Sadducees and even some chief priests, gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us. They were fearing the opinions of men. They were hypocrites. They were concerned too much about, well, they weren't concerned about God's heart at all. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death. You say, well, what are we saying? This is it. They did it right here, fast and furious. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one who God exalted to the right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those, whom God has given to those, what? Who obey him. Notice what they said in just a few sentences. Jesus has been resurrected. He's the king. He's the king. He's the prince king. Uh, through Jesus, you can be forgiven. And there are two witnesses, both the apostles who were witnesses, eyewitnesses, and the Holy Spirit here, present, right here in La Quinta, California in the 2022. The Holy Spirit is there to be a witness. So when you put all this together this morning, I say we join King David as he contemplated the, the, the beauty and the goodness of the eternal judge. And to do that, and he was always, again, hinting at God's future kingdom and, and the fact that he was going to, had a plan of forgiveness. And so one of my favorite readers of all people uh, is B. Dine. B. Dine, are you here? Where are you? B. Dine, you just come right on up here. And I would read it for you, but I've kind of got a mix of California and a little bit of West Texas and a little bit of all that other stuff. And she just has nothing but beauty. So I said, B, come up and read Psalm 103. And the whole structure of this is, is it well with your soul? And then we're going to finish with, well, some of you might have been a little bit too up-tempo on that second song. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lull you into a beautiful place with the Lord, and we're going to sing, It is well with my soul at the end. B, would you mind reading Psalm 103? And when we conclude the last worship song, Pastor Paul will come up and close us in prayer. Thank you, Miss B, You're for welcome. reading Psalm 103 in your glorious voice. <laughs> Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dwelt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Thank you. 